Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast, brought to you by DonorSearch, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders, innovators, and changemakers in fundraising, philanthropy, and civil society. I'm your host, Jay Frost. Andrew Olson is a best-selling author, popular podcaster, speaker, and nonprofit marketer who has guided over 500 nonprofits in raising more than half a billion dollars. Over the years, he has built and led fundraising programs on behalf of organizations ranging from Covenant House International to Care USA and dozens of rescue missions in food banks across the U.S. and Canada. Today, he serves as Senior Vice President of Fundraising Solutions at Dickerson Bacon & Associates, leading the firm's major gift consulting practice, overseeing the impact messaging division, and responsibilities for developing and launching new products and services for the firm. In our conversation, he takes us on the journey from the rough neighborhood and tough times of his LA childhood to today, where he lives on a farm in Tennessee with his family and menagerie of 227 animals and counting. So we'll begin by just asking you a big question, which is where are you coming from? You told me a bit about that earlier, about growing up in the city. Is that right? Yeah, so I, I grew up uh, in Southern California, Los Angeles area. Uh, you know, from from the time I was I was born there, and and until I was you know late twenties, um, grew up in that area, all all throughout really the San Gabriel Valley, so Pasadena, El Monte, that kind of you know area of Los Angeles, and uh, have have moved around the country, travel a lot for work, um, lived for about 16 years in Minneapolis and uh, lived through a lot of snow and a lot of cold weather. And then a couple of years ago, uh, actually in the middle of the pandemic, my wife and I looked at each other as the snow was falling and, and people were stuck in their houses and we couldn't let our kids out the door. And we said, what are we doing? Like this is stupid. Let's go somewhere where it's warmer and we could at least be outside. Uh, so we, we, uh, migrated down to Knoxville, Tennessee. That's where we are now. Why Knoxville? You know, we had some good friends that that lived in Knoxville, and we would come down uh, for about five years. We would make the trip down from from Minnesota to to Tennessee to spend a week with them, week and a half, something like that. And we just really enjoyed um, how open it was. We like the mountains, but we don't want like constant snow. So being at the foothills of the Smokies uh, was really attractive to us, and uh, so that's what brought us down here. It's a big world of difference between L.A., Minnesota, and. Tennessee. So uh, go back a little bit to growing up in LA. It, again, LA is a big place. And for those who don't know it, what was it like where you grew up? Yeah, um, it, it is very different uh, from the other places where, where I have lived and do live now. So I, I grew up, um, we, my wife and I joke about this. She, she's also from Southern California, um, but we literally lived on opposite sides of the tracks in, in every sense of the word. Um, I, the, the areas that I lived were, um, much more, um, riddled with poverty. Um, we grew up pretty poor. Uh, I grew up in, in a couple of neighborhoods that were fairly gang infested where we had, um, drive-by shootings on our street fairly regularly. Uh, my little sister actually was about uh, 10 feet from, from a woman who was uh, shot in a drive-by. So that's, that's the kind of neighborhood that I grew up in, um, you know, a community where, uh, and I think so many people who are immigrants to this country experience this, but I experienced it backwards, right? I, I grew up on, on a couple of different blocks where I was the only kid who spoke English. Um, and so to, to play with the other kids in the neighborhood, I had to 
developed the um, the broken Spanish that I probably still have. It's even worse now. Um, but you know, just that little bit to be able to to communicate with with kids in the neighborhood. Um, but, uh, so that, that's the, that's the area in Los Angeles where I, where I came from, where I grew up. And, uh, so that is, you're right, very different from either Minneapolis or Knoxville. How did your family end up in that particular neighborhood in LA? So, um, when I, I was telling the story yesterday to Kevin Fitzpatrick on the one visit away show, um, when I was, uh, a teenager, uh, so uh, let me back up a little bit. We ended up there because that's what we could afford, right? Um, my dad was a, a minister. And so, you know, if you know much about ministry organizations, they don't tend to pay a lot. Um, and the churches that he worked with were tended to be in more kind of impoverished areas, smaller churches, more community based, not, not big, you know, ministries. And my mom was a teacher's assistant. And that's, you know, it's one of those hourly jobs that at the time probably paid like seven to 10 bucks an hour sort of thing. So they, they weren't wealthy. And, uh, that meant that we, you know, we found, housing in in the neighborhoods that we could afford and and on top of that uh we ended up discovering that my father had a gambling addiction and so um at one point we lost everything we became homeless um and and that meant that we we further uh we you know kind of went deeper into more impoverished communities where housing was even cheaper and where um government assistance was more readily available and we were able to to make ends meet um in in places that you know i, I certainly don't wish my, on my kids or, or anybody else's that must have left a huge impression, not only on your life, but also on your relationships with family and the things that your family did when you were growing up, including uh, your faith-based relationships. Where are your parents today? So my dad uh, passed a few years ago, um, and my mom uh, is now a teacher in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, and, and you're right, it, it changed everything. Um, and and it also, you know, I, I was I was listening, I think, to John Maxwell uh, a couple of days ago, and, and he, there was this quote that he said that really hit me. It, it said, you know, sometimes we we view things in our life that happen as setbacks when really they're just setups for something better. Mm-hmm. And, and I was thinking about that in this context and, and the idea that, you know, so much of what I experienced growing up, and I think this is probably true for a lot of people in our sector, but so much of what I experienced growing up actually put me on the path to to really have a deeper understanding of what it means to be in the shoes of the people that a lot of our uh, nonprofit partners serve and, and really kind of set the trajectory for, for my entire career, my entire focus um, to help raise money for organizations that serve um, primarily people who live in poverty. Right. Well, you were, and you were living in a community where you saw those needs, but it sounds like your parents in their own ways were also addressing those needs that certainly with, uh, work in the ministry or teaching the school for sure. That's, that's a life of service. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And extended family, we've got, uh, sheriff's deputies, paramedics. I mean, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, for, you know, family members who serve in the military. So, uh, that kind of service is, is very uh, common across our entire family. And then in terms of your, your education, when you, when you left there, did you, did you leave uh, kind of intentionally? Some people go off to school, to college, and they think, I'm going to go as far away as possible. But others stick close to home, especially when a family has gone through 
kind of a collective challenge. So what kind of choice did you make and how did you make it? <laughs> so I did end up almost as far away as I could have, uh, but it was it was less by intention and, and more by luck or grace or some, some other uh, determining factor. So what happened was uh, at that time, you know, we still were, were you know, kind of deeply in poverty. Um, my parents had, had uh, separated and divorced at that point. And the only thing that I expected was that, you know, I, I probably would only be able to afford college if I went into the military and used um, government benefits in order to pay for college after the fact. So I was, um, you know, weeks away from uh, enlisting. And my, my mother came to me and, and in tears said, you know, I, I found this college that I think might give you a scholarship because it's affiliated with the congregational church, which is the type of church my father had pastored. Mm -hmm. and, and she said, you know, if you, if you really want to go get shot overseas somewhere, uh, like, could you at least give this an, a try first and get an education? And then if you still want to do that, you can go, you know, and, and for me, it wasn't really about like, Hey, I want to go be in the military. It was more of this is a means to an end in a way, the only way I can think of that I can get an education. So fast forward, you know, I, I went through an application project process with the college and lo and behold, they, they didn't just offer me a scholarship. They offered to cover everything, all of my tuition, all room and board books, everything. Uh, and, and so, you know, I kind of looked at, looked in the mirror and thought, oh, well, it would be incredibly stupid to say no to that in favor of, of doing something else. And if, if somebody's going to offer you completely free uh, for your education, you better jump at it. So that that's how I ended up uh, in the Northeast Georgia mountains, uh, going to school, uh, going to college out there. Is that Piedmont? It is. Yes. It, now, again, that's a, one of those framing experiences. As you said, it, it, it really informs what we do, how we think about things. So when you were offered a full ride um, and, uh, um, my wife had one too. So I, I know that was a huge experience for her. And it really frames how she thinks about her relationship to education, other students, the school, et cetera. How, how did you react to that initially besides seeing it as a way to not necessarily go into the military, but go and get education? What do you think now, as you think about that kind of offer? You know, um, I, I, I think about this every once in a while and I, I wish that I had been in a better, um, sort of more grown up mindset then. I, I mean, obviously I, I took advantage of it. I went and I did four years and I, I, you know, graduated with a pretty decent GPA. And, um, but I, I think I was, I was dealing with so many other things at that point that I sort of just went through the motions to get through school so that I could get out and get a job. And I, I think there, there probably were a lot of missed opportunities for me. Um, you know, I had no, no complaints. I, I did well. And I, you know, I, I've been very successful after the fact. Um, but I think I probably didn't appreciate all of that context as much as I could have. It sounds like you have an appreciation for it now. For sure. Yeah. It, uh, and you were studying what at that time? Was that religion, philosophy? What? What were you so I, I started uh, as a psych major. Oh. Mm -hmm. And, um, but you know how it is. Like, you, I don't know what the statistic is. I, I think I've heard people say, you know, kids these days change majors, you know, five to seven times before they graduate or something like that. I, uh, I started as a psychology major, did my first year um, 
with that focus. I had some great classes, but I, uh, I ran into this group of people that were outside one day, um, you know, on, on a, a professor's uh, home's uh, patio uh, at, at his home. And they just looked like they were having a great conversation and really engaged. And I, I thought, huh, that's a, that's the kind of community that I'd like to be a part of. And, and went over and had a conversation with them and it turned out they were the philosophy club. And so, uh, you know, a couple of days later, I, I kept thinking about it. And I thought, you know, I think I'm just going to change my major. So I, I, uh, transferred my my approach and I I moved off of psychology and and joined the uh, philosophy and religion uh, major and went through the rest of my uh, college career studying that and uh, graduated with um, with that bachelor's degree and then a, a minor in uh, psychology people talk a lot about psychology in our field and I know we'll talk more about your professional life in just a second but I imagine that when you're thinking about um, the philosophy of things, why we do things, and then the psychology of things, how people think about things, that there must actually be a lot of relationships between those, especially in your work. There, there are, you know, I, like so many people in our sector, like I, I never intended to do this work. I didn't go to school planning to, to be a fundraiser or work with nonprofits. I didn't know, honestly, I think at that point, even know they existed. Um, but more and more, I see the crossover every day in in you know the the value of understanding human behavior, mm-hmm. and in in being able to look at situations in a multi dimensional way, and and process information um, based on you know understanding of different worldviews and things like that. There's there's quite a level of of crossover uh, between philosophy, psychology, and and what's done in uh, in the nonprofit sector. Well, and then we have religion as a huge pillar as well. And Absolutely. Discussion all the time about how our relationship to faith, both informal and formal, it does influence whether or not we give and how we ask and all these other things. It, are these uh, influences from that early education? It sounds like early in your life, still big pieces of your life and your work. They, they are, you know, I, uh, I am still today to this day, a, a person of faith and, uh, we, you know, worship regularly in a community here, uh, you know, so there's that there's the, you know, the formal study of, of religion that was pretty helpful in, in kind of grounding me in, in how communities of faith and people of faith think and, and process information. And then there's just the other side of it, like being a pastor's kid, right? Like I grew up in the church and didn't, didn't even understand that it was the same thing, but you know, I can remember the uh, stewardship sermons and the, the way that those conversations were structured and, and you invite a congregation to, to give and to invest in, in the church community and things like that. So um, I think at, at one point or another, I've, I've probably drawn on all those different experiences to, to shape, um, you know, the, the work that I do. I just had no idea back then that they were even a, a, a thing, you know? Right. Uh, and now you were there, but I saw something interesting in your professional history that not long afterwards that you went and uh, took a certificate from Berkeley, which is on the other side of the country. I know it brings you back to California, but for those who don't know, that area is very different from L.A. And you did it in political campaign management, which at least for a lot of people at a distance, politics seems so different from the world of 
kind of the purity of religious and and philosophical inquiry. Uh, what what was that about? And is politics a feature of some of your thinking and your work? It's yes. Uh, it's, it's funny that you you bring that up. Um, I would say politics and religion and philosophy are not as far disconnected as people might think, um, uh, particularly when we get into the psychology of things. Uh, so at that point, yes, I was I was very interested. Um, I, I had done a, a good bit of study uh, while I was in college um, related to international relations and, and uh, geopolitics and um, had a, a really just fascinating professor who was a, a retired Marine Corps judge advocate general who had been all over the world and was able to connect the dots on how um, how countries relate to one another and how peoples from various countries relate to one another as uh, within the context of of political organizations and things like that. So I, I was interested in it from from that perspective. But I, I, when I started my career in fundraising at uh, Russ Reed, uh, one of my colleagues, her husband, was um, headed up a, a, one of the major political parties in the state of California. And so I, um, I got connected into that Berkeley program through him and ended up that actually, um, you know, I, I left Russ Reed after five years. And the next job that I took was was actually at a political consulting firm. It's what took me to Minnesota. Um, and that certificate program was sort of the foundational uh, first experience in, in that um, that that launched the, the next three years of my career, um, raising money for political organizations and candidates. OK, so that's it sounds like that's where you really got your your uh, fundraising start. Is that right? In political fundraising? For sure. And it's certainly where I learned um, the, you know, the, the tenants and the, the tools around high dollar fundraising and, and dealing with high net worth donors and things of that nature. Uh, it, you know, the, the consulting firm was primarily a, a direct response telephone fundraising firm, but a lot of the work we did was with donors who were giving, you know, five, 10, 15, $25,000 at a clip, um, which is much different than the traditional sort of, you know, 35, $50 donor. Yes, it is. And in fact, one of the things that people talk about again at a distance, Mm -hmm. maybe not knowing it as you do, is that there's a transactionality about most of political fundraising, those smaller gifts that is similar in some respects to the way many nonprofits will treat, you know, more modest level donors. And people wonder is the, it, it, what, what is causing a, a diminishment of the, of, of donors uh, for philanthropy? And is it in part, maybe the way that they're treated? You mentioned this word stewardship. It sounds like even with the political, you were focusing on stewardship because if you're dealing with big dollar donors in politics, that has to be relationship based, isn't it? A lot of it is. I mean, well, and I'll say this in the political arena, even at the highest levels, there is much more of a transactional nature to the relationship than not. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly more so than in a nonprofit organization. I mean, the the even some of the biggest donors that I ever interacted with or, or you know, our, our clients interacted with, there was still much more of a um, sort of quid pro quo relationship Uh in a political operation right. than there is in a nonprofit. It's, it's almost, you know, when, when you think about it, uh, if I'm giving to a political committee or a campaign or a candidate, there's a very 
discrete transfer of value, right? I'm giving you this money and I'm expecting you to, to fight against this or fight for that or go accomplish this thing from a policy perspective. Um, and oftentimes I'm also expecting to trade access for that contribution. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's one of the big reasons why, why people get involved um, financially in, in you know, giving to political campaigns and committees because of that, that uh, opportunity to, to create access. So there's, there's a lot of that, but it is very much more so um, relationally driven than, than what you might experience in low dollar fundraising programs um, for, for nonprofit organizations. Um, and I, I do think I, I agree with you. I think a big part of why we're seeing the the decline in giving right now, I mean, some of it is, is purely financial, I think, but um, the other piece of it that is a significant contributor is that we've spent a whole long time and a whole lot of uh, effort and money to teach donors to give transactionally rather than to uh, engage relationally. There's a lot that I want to talk about with you, but I want to ask you why that is so. Why, which part is so? Why is it that, that we, that we have been working to essentially train the people who love the same things we do to interact with us just in a transactional way? Yeah, I, I don't know that, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think there was a grand design around that, right? I don't think a, a cohort of nonprofit leaders got together and said, how, how do we how do we cause people not to actually build relationship with us? I don't think it was that. Right. But, um, you know, if I look back 50, 60 years and, and you know, I, I mentioned that I started my fundraising career at Russ Reed. Russ was an actual human being, a great guy. Um, and and he he's, you know, kind of made direct response fundraising for at least for ministries and and similar organizations, you know, put it on the map with the idea that why is it that a commercial uh, company like Coca-Cola or Pepsi can, you know, have this, you know, high level marketing that causes millions of people to buy their product. And we can't have something similar to solve the world's biggest problems. Right. So, so Russ went about uh, with some others, you know, key leaders in the industry all across the the country in the U.S. and Canada, actually, and and they started doing things that were very similar to for-profit marketing uh, on behalf of nonprofits. So they started running space ads in newspapers and raising money by telling people, you know, a, a very simple. Hey, you know, there's a homeless person on the streets of Los Angeles and for $1.97, you can provide a meal and a night of shelter, something like that, right? That fundraising offer uh, is still in use today. And it's in use today because it still produces transactional gifts. And so I, I think what happened, and, and I talk to, to ministry leaders all the time and, and other nonprofit leaders, and, and I'll ask them, you know, why don't you have a major gift program? And they'll say things to me like, well, I just never had to build one because the revenue was so good and I didn't have to add headcount um, when I outsourced all of this to a direct marketing agency, right? So so mm-hmm. why would I undertake that effort if I was still producing good revenue and, and I didn't have to add costs? Why, why would I? And so I think for a lot of organizations, it's simply the fact that it's really easy to do the things that produce transactional results mm-hmm. um, and not have to think about you know, not just adding the cost of the headcount and managing the staff, but also, you know, as the leader, then you you have to be committed to relationship development and to being front and center and present with donors on an ongoing basis. And, and then you get into the psychology of, 
um, you know, soliciting and, and having to deal with the angst of, of putting yourself out there and making an ask and getting a no. And does that no mean that they hate me? Does it mean that they don't believe in our mission? Does it mean that I'm bad at this job? I mean, there's so many different things that get tied up in that, that for many organizations, I, I think they just said, you know what, that sounds really hard and really kind of painful. Why would I want to do that? when I can just write a check and have somebody else do the work for me. And yeah, it'll be less efficient, but everything else will be easier. And I can focus on the stuff that I actually enjoy, which is managing the program and dealing with the, you know, the, the service recipients and, and, you know, doing those things that, that don't feel as emotionally risky to me. How do you feel about that? Well, I mean, here's the funny thing. I built my career on direct response marketing. I, I've worked in four or five direct response agencies. I've done direct mail, DRTV, uh, email campaigns. I mean, all those things that are transactional, right? But uh, but a number of years ago, I started to really kind of feel uh, conflicted about this because I, I believe that there's a better way to do things. And um, and as part of what prompted my move to uh, to Dickerson Baker over the last 90 days, is that I, I've just come to the realization that uh, we, if we want to accomplish big vision and big mission and really move the needle on things like solving the homelessness crisis and, uh, you know, ending human trafficking and dealing with, you know, hunger and poverty and cancer and all these things, we have to stop just kicking the can and we have to stop being okay with a two and a half or a three to one return on investment and just doing a little better every year. And we've got to rethink the entire way that we approach the donor engagement. If we really want to bring people along in their generosity and encourage transformational giving that allows us to accomplish our mission, we've got to behave differently. And it's got to start, I think, with guys like me. There is a lot to unpack there. And one of the things that you talked about earlier when you talked about Russ Reed is this recognition that in the corporate world, brand was dominant, that you could build a relationship with, let's say, Coke, and it's have a Coke and a smile, or you know, I'm trying to think of the things I grew up hearing. And even though you might have been purchasing something that's transactional, you felt like, oh, I'm a, I'm a Coke person versus a Pepsi person, or... Uh, it might, you know, it might be the same with shoes, right? Where's it's, I don't know, Vans versus Nike or something like that. And I'm, I'm wondering, have we been able to accomplish that on, um, this is not a great way to think about it, but on the, on the bottom half of the pyramid, or have we been only about the dollars? Yeah, I, I think largely we have not been able to accomplish it. And, and we've really only been about the dollars. And, and I think the, you know, there are probably a few organizations that are doing this well, but when when you talk to donors um, and, and you you know you survey them and you ask about charitable brands and you ask about you know the the organizations they give to, I, I don't know if you've had conversations like that with donors, but oftentimes the donors don't even know who it is that they gave to, right? They they might say, oh, I, I gave to the local food pantry. Um, and in reality, maybe they did, but maybe they gave to a different organization. Uh, maybe they gave to the Lutheran Social Services, or maybe they gave to Catholic Charities, or or you know any number of different organizations. So I, I think there's, 
you know, there, there's not been the kind of brand advocacy in the nonprofit sector that creates the kind of connection that you're talking about to, to a commercial entity. I mean, I think about, you know, uh, if you are an Apple, uh, a Mac user versus right. a PC user, there's, there's like a bright line between those two things. There's no confusion. No, nobody sits down and goes, oh, I'm going to open my Mac. Oh, it's actually a PC. Like that, that just doesn't happen. Right. Um, but if I were to put seven direct mail packages in front of you that are all for a similar type organizations and, and you had donated to one, it would probably take you 20 minutes to figure out which one you actually gave to. But we don't have that confusion with universities. I mean, no, for sure not. Uh, nor, nor for many healthcare organizations. Right. Um, and, but I think there, there's two reasons for that, right? So the, the first is that the people who donate to those organizations had a personal, mm -hmm. meaningful, and often long-term relationship with the organization before it ever became a philanthropic engagement. Mm. And, and two, both of those types of organizations start with the end in mind and the end is the relationship right there they don't begin the conversation with a transaction largely like, there probably are some that do and and I, I put them in a different category but most of the eds and meds really understand at their core that relationship changes everything and if they invest in the relationship the revenue will flow from that and wonder if it's possible, even if we don't have the benefit of four years hanging out in the dorms uh, and dating and taking classes with professors we loved and hated and all those other things that we know from school or getting the care at a hospital or watching a loved one receive care, that even if we don't have the benefit of that experience, if it's possible to replicate the other element, it's something that over time we build a relationship, then we start asking, but we ask in a way that models on their experience versus our needs. Is that something that, that you find other organizations able to do? I, I think so. You know, what's interesting to me is the, the times where I find this most often are in some of the smallest charities. Hmm. And it's because they're still able to get really close to their donors because they have fewer donors. And, and so they, they're able to build a more meaningful relationship often because of that ability to be proximate with those donors. Mm -hmm. And, and they, you know, I, I think one of the challenges is when you, when you hit a certain scale organizationally, you start to build in the bureaucracy that pushes you away from the donor. And because you, you're looking to build efficiency, right? And you're looking to grow faster. And, and the only way to do those things at an acceptable return on investment is to, um, to operationalize them and to mechanize them in a way that, um, that pushes the donor outside in the conversation. And, and so I, I often see that some of the best examples of, of kind of building that continuity and that relationship outside of education and, and medicine are in organizations that are still what most in our sector would refer to as grassroots. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but I, you know, I, so I, I think we, we have a lot to learn from those small organizations. Often, you know, you go to a conference or something, you'll, you'll hear people talk about, well, you know, it's not really for small organizations. We're bigger. So we have different issues and things like that. And, and I think if we get a little bit, you know, outside of ourselves and, and not be so arrogant, we could look at some of those smaller organizations and realize, wow, you know, they may only have 250 donors, 
but they've built really deep relationships and, and they, they certainly have things to learn and, and, you know, needs that are different, but we could also learn something about how to continue to manage relationships from folks like that. I also think organizations that have um, significant volunteer engagement, uh, I, I see those organizations often doing this better because they are, they are building that pipeline for, for giving out of the volunteer experience um, or, or out of, you know, um, maybe not even volunteer, but some other, uh, you know, rather than, than acquiring a donor through traditional acquisition and, and, you know, getting that first transaction, organizations that are bringing people into relationship uh, through content marketing and two-way conversations and things of that nature, uh, I think those are the kind of organizations long-term that are probably going to be able to do this better and, and build deeper relationships that eventually lead to more transformational giving because they're not starting the, the relationship off uh, just setting the tone for small-dollar transactional uh, engagement. Right, because they, that's just about the money. It's not about the people. Uh, exactly. What's interesting about that is that you've built a lot of your professional life on direct response. And when people think about direct response, at least when I do, I think volume right, and metrics. Right. And, but you've just made a, a, this great argument for a focus on maybe a, a smaller number of more substantial relationships that also have the benefit of bringing us potentially more revenue. You're not saying don't pay attention to other people. You're just saying pay more attention to a smaller group of people. Is that right? It's absolutely right. You know, I, I think, um, and, and yeah, I mean, you know, for, for many years of my career, I was managing really large marketing programs and, and, you know, sometimes millions of donor records, and there's no way for an organization to build relationships at that scale. You'd have to hire hundreds of fundraisers and the, the cost on that is exponential. You know, I, um, but, but if we really want to do this well, and we really want to create an atmosphere where donors can actually give their best gifts, we have to focus on relationships and, and we have to also spend the majority of our time with the people who can give the, the most significant gifts. You know, it's, it's not maybe a popular thing to say because there's definitely a, a populist uh, undertone right now. And, and, you know, I hear a lot of people talking about, you know, you, you need to treat every donor equally. And I get that to an extent, but we have to be realists as well and say, if, if donor A can only ever give you a hundred dollars and donor B can give you 10 million, you do a disservice to your mission by not focusing more time, energy, and effort on donor B. And, and so I, I think we have to set up a, a system and a structure that allows us to do that well, even at some level of scale, because some organizations might have thousands of donors who can give significant gifts. But if all they ever do is put them in a mechanized fundraising program where they get, you know, the same sort of rote direct mail experience and email experience as, as every other donor, and it never moves to the point of inviting them into a personal relationship, you're never going to move the needle. So do you see organizations being ready to make that change and do things that are more substantial with individual relationships, even in direct response, even across the base of the pyramid, because it, 
I, we just came through, this is going to date this episode of the podcast, unfortunately, Andrew, but uh, we just came through <laughs> the giving season, the big giving season in yep. the U.S. And I know that I still, uh, I think I received my first physical letter with a postscript on it yesterday and nothing uh, from any other organization except for digital receipts. <clears throat> uh, yeah. And this doesn't matter if I've given them a small contribution or I've given them what for me is a larger contribution and I know is potentially maybe in the top 5% of their donor pool. And so I'm thinking about it rationally as a, as a person in our profession, but I'm experiencing it as a person and I'm not at least personally experiencing yet organizations sending me uh, these letters with postscripts or giving me a phone call or doing anything else that shows that they know that I'm human. Yeah. And you're unfortunately not, uh, not alone in that. I, I think that what I'm talking about, a lot of organizations are are starting to talk about, you know, and I, and I think it starts with the conversation of we need to focus more on retention than on acquisition, right? That that's the that's the easy kind of low-hanging fruit in this dialogue. Right. But what I what I find interesting is that that conversation very rarely progresses to action because it's a lot easier and it feels a lot better to add new to an organization than to keep existing. Right. For a number of reasons. I think humans are just wired psychologically to have a preference for new, different, you know, that kind of thing. So there's a, there's a natural inclination to focus in those areas and it can be harder. Like it's, it's very easy to, to, you know, turn on the spigot, if you will, and bring new names into a donor file. It's a lot harder to do the things that are required to keep somebody once you've already, you know, they've already made that first gift. And it, it often impacts more areas of your business uh, organizationally than just bringing a new name in. For example, when we talk about a donor journey and donor experience, a lot of people think, well, that just means I have to have a annual calendar for my mailings and my emails. And, and I have to make sure that, you know, there's continuity, but in reality, donor experience is everything. It's, it's the way they experience your brand before they make a first gift. Mm -hmm. It's how they experience your follow-up after it, it's what their experience is when they call your office. Do they get an automated phone tree that takes 20 minutes and makes them feel like they're trying to schedule a DMV appointment? <laughs> or do they get a warm human being that says, Hey, thanks so much for giving us a call. How can I serve you today? Right. That, that is like that kind of conversation right there can be foundational in, in retaining and bonding a donor to an organization and nobody's paying attention to it. Right. So, you know, until an organization is actually willing to move beyond the, the sort of generality and platitude of saying, oh yes, we have to focus more on retention and actually start to put budget and priority and strategy against that to, to drive meaningfully different uh, outcomes, I, I don't think they're going to be ready for what I'm talking about. But there are some organizations that, uh, you know, and I, and I interact with a lot uh, who, who say, you know, there's got to be a better way for us to do this. We, we are tired of just churning through names and beating up our donors and asking, you know, I, I, I've worked with organizations that, that in their direct mail program alone, mail 50, 60, 70 times a year. And some that have even, uh, even more emails going out, you know, and, and they, they do that because 
they're um, at, at some level addicted to the gross revenue that it that it drives, right? There's there's board expectations, there's C-level expectations, there's there's departmental goals that are triggered off of that gross revenue. And so they can't even think of the idea of giving giving up some of that gross revenue and getting smaller so that their net can get bigger and they can actually put more money to mission. And a case in point, I I was counseling a, a very large uh, national nonprofit brand. They've been around for for dozens of decades and and they raise somewhere in the neighborhood of 26 million dollars a year in their mail program but they spend 22 million to get there and so i my team and i did an analysis on this and we we sat with them and we said okay this is this is insane like there is there's nothing about this program that puts you in a healthy position to grow and actually deliver on mission because so much of your net is going back into the coffers of the printers and the you know postal service and the, the list buyers and you know the, the marketing agencies. You've got to change your your philosophy here. You've got to you know even in 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 the first year, let's take a couple of million dollars and let's put that in headcount and put people around the the country because by the way you have over three hundred thousand active supporters. And, and we've done the analysis and we can tell you who, who in that file has capacity to give you more and is close enough to you that you could you know, probably meaningfully impact the relationship in the next 12 months. And, and they listened intently and they nodded their heads in all the right places. And, and then they simply said, well, that's not how our model's built. And uh, we're not comfortable with the idea of reducing our mail volume and what that does to our cost per piece and what it does to our efficiencies. So, so we're just not going to do it. You know, and I, I, if we can't get out of our own ways, we're not going to fix this. But, um, but I, I am confident that there are organizations who acknowledge and who are starting to take the steps necessary to do this differently in the future. You've been working at disruption a lot in this sector because some of the things you're saying are both logical, but then they they do run counter to the norms, just like that example. You, yep. you, um, so is that the kind of thing that you're working on now with with your new role? It is. You know, so I um, I made this move. Goodness, it's almost 90 days ago now uh, with the. Um, with really two goals in mind. Um, I wanted to get back to working directly um, with clients that are, that are engaging with high net worth donors mm -hmm. and, and be able to move the needle on some really big, um, really important uh, campaigns across the country. And, and then I also, so Derek Baker, who's the, the founder and CEO of Dickerson Baker, uh, you know, he and I have, have worked closely together for a long time and, and, uh, and we both, from different kind of ends of the pyramid, if you will, ha have been pulling at this thread of there's got to be a better way to do this. And there's got to be a better way for organizations, even internally, to manage their direct response fundraising and their major gifts programs and, and not have conflict at the center of that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when we decided to uh, to formally link up and and for me to join the team uh it was with the explicit objective of building a different kind of agency that actually meets the kind of objectives that i just laid out for you does it allow you to still sink your teeth into working with organizations that may at first be resistant and and the re and the reason i'm asking that is that there is a through line that i'm hearing as you describe your whole life 
so far. And one of them is working in these organizations that had this kind of impact. I mean, you, you talked about almost going into the military, and I see you've served on the board of a veterans group, and you've mm -hmm. talked about your own experience with homelessness in your life and, and certainly being around people who were on the edge in the neighborhood where you grew up. And you have served for several years on an organization working with uh, on the board of an organization working the, uh, with the homeless. Um, will you, through this kind of approach, not just at the firm, but generally with this approach you're taking to the work, be able to help those kinds of organizations to do what they need to do so that fewer people are on the streets and more people can, you know, have that experience out of the military that that really brings them to where they need and want to be with the care that they need and deserve. Yeah, it's a great question, Dave. So, um, you know, I I believe that there are uh, really two callings on my life, uh, and and one uh, is to help end as much suffering as possible while I'm on this earth. So um, that that allows me and really motivates me every day to to find the kind of organizations that you're talking about and to um, to create ways to add value to what they're doing. And and so, you know, I, I do think and, and you know, we're, we're already sort of in the mix with organizations like that, you know, partly because that's those are the kind of organizations that Dickerson Baker already served, you know, groups like the Salvation Army, like rescue missions across the country, um, you know, global ministry organizations that are dealing with with people who are living in crisis and, and you know, things of that nature. Um, and and so whether it's it's professionally in that way with organizations or, or personally in a volunteer capacity, uh, like I do um, serving on the board of Downrange Warriors, you know, um, I I am looking for ways to to add and create value that helps organizations um, mitigate as much suffering as possible. And I think, you know, the, the model that I'm outlining here and where we're headed organizationally can work for just about any kind of organization. I, I don't think it's cause specific, but um, it does require a different level of leadership vision and a willing or a willingness for the the organization and the people in the organization to uh, kind of embrace a different way of thinking about philanthropy and and move from the idea of easy transaction to relationship engagement. As you talk about all these things, it strikes me that there's a lot of chaos in the world that I guess we all work in, but particularly that you've chosen. It's the chaos of the detail of these data files and trying to figure out where the opportunities are and get people to focus on the right things and trying to convince people to do what they need to do, not only to raise the revenue, but build relationships and grow the organization and get that net and all these other things. And it also means getting to business and convincing people to stay and all these other things that you do. And then you've chosen you know, the fast lane here, but you've chosen the slow lane in your own life. <laughs> what is that about? What brought you to Tennessee? Why did you decide to do that in the middle of all this chaos to choose this, what sounds like a more peaceful path? Yeah. So um, it might sound peaceful, but in a minute, I'm going to share something else with you that'll make you laugh because it probably will, will sound not peaceful at that point. Um, you know, my, my wife and I, uh, a long time ago, decided that we we wanted to eventually um, own some land. And, you know, I, I lived in areas where 
you know, often as a kid, uh, and I was in a, an apartment building or, or a, you know, duplex or something like that, where we're literally like, if someone coughed on the other side of the wall, you could hear it. Right. And, <laughs> and you could probably, you know, hear which cigarette they had just lit and, and what bottle of, you know, uh, booze they had just opened, uh, quite clearly through the paper walls. And, and I remember, a long time ago saying to my wife, like, eventually I want to live in a place where I can walk out on my front porch and not hear my neighbor. And, uh, and, and also, you know, when, when we decided to have children and we started to think about the kind of life we wanted for them, uh, particularly, you know, because of how, how we both grew up and just what we knew about ourselves and, and, you know, what we assumed about, kids we would raise is that we wanted to make sure that they had an opportunity to, to really experience life differently. Um, and, and, you know, to, to get out of the day-to-day chaos and rat race of a big city and get out into the country. So that's really, you know, kind of 15 years of, of progressive desire to do this, uh, in our relationship. And then finally having the opportunity during the pandemic to kind of pull a parachute and say, let's get out of here. Let's, let's leave Minneapolis and, and go somewhere where we can make this a reality. So that's what, that's what got us down to Tennessee. And, and, you know, we spent a year in a tiny little apartment uh, in Knoxville before we, we actually found a a farm property. And uh, so about a year ago uh, this past October, we, we moved on to a, a little farm in uh, East Knoxville, right at the Knox and Sevier County lines um, out near, uh, for, for those who are you know, somewhat knowledgeable about the Knoxville area, where we're um, basically right between Knoxville and uh, Gatlinburg. And, uh, and we now have, I, I counted this morning, uh, 227 animals on this farm. Oh, that's, wow. the, that's the part that feels more chaotic than not. Jay. <laughs> okay. So uh, <laughs> what are you doing with all these animals? <laughs> um, right now, just trying not to get overrun. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, um, we have uh, over a hundred chickens. And so when, when the weather's not uh, cold, that means we're producing a lot of eggs. And mm-hmm. so we're, we're sharing those with the community. We're selling them. We're, you know, all those kind of things. We, we do eat some of the animals uh, on the property. So, we, you know, we raised uh, turkeys uh, in advance of Thanksgiving and we're able to, to feed about 30 different families uh, with their Thanksgiving turkey. Um, we, we raise uh, two different types of pigs here on the farm. And so we've, we've been able to, to, um, you know, provide really high quality protein for, for the community uh, in that respect as well. And for ourselves. Uh, And then we've got other animals just for fun. You know, we've got, um, we've got a small herd of Nigerian dwarf goats that really aren't good for anything other than humor. Um, One of them has learned to uh, ring my ring doorbell. So uh, every once in a while, I get a nice video call on my phone from the goat. um, Which is great in like client presentations. It's, It's been a lot of fun. Um, you know, and then we've got uh, we've got ducks, we've got uh, Jersey uh, cattle, we've got Guinea hens, um, we've got geese, and then we we've got uh, five dogs. So, is this what you imagined it would be like? And and what does your wife say about it now <laughs> that you've gone down this path? It, it is not at all what I imagined it like when I when I first thought about being out 
you know, on a little bit of land. I imagined, you know, myself, my wife, our kids, maybe one or two dogs and a good cup of coffee. And, and now that is, um, there, there's certainly more than that. Uh, my wife loves it. Um, yeah. And I'm not going to say it's not hard, right? There are certain days when we're both like, oh my goodness, what have we got ourselves into? Um, you know, we, we had, uh, I, I was telling somebody else a couple of days ago, when we, we bought some pigs from uh, um, a breeder in North Carolina last year. And when we first got them home, we put them in within an electric fence, you know, they're piglets at the time. And we thought, okay, we'll, we'll be perfect. We'll put them in this fence. They'll, they'll just, you know, lay down. We'll take care of them. We'll feed them within 45 seconds. They all blew through the fence and ran up a hill across the road wow. and, and were lost for about seven days. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and we tried to chase them. It was a futile effort. You know, we, I mean, all sorts of ridiculousness. And we, we were like, we should just throw in the towel and sell this place and go back to a condo, you know? <laughs> um, but we, we fought our way through it. We ended up, um, seeing the pigs back. My wife had a brilliant plan to put food all the way, you know, in, in little piles all the way up our driveway until we can get into a gated area. And eventually they they did that and we were able to sneak around the house and, and lock them back in so that we could uh, keep them. Um, but, you know, things like that happen. You know, I, I, got, uh, I got knocked over by a cow a couple of days ago. Um, you know, our, our, our goats will come and, and, you know, destroy something every other day. I, my wife and I joke about it. I take pictures of, of it now and I send it to her and I say, I just want you to know your, your goat's cost us another $50. And here, here's the picture. Here's the proof, <laughs> um, you know, so things like that happen. But at the same time, um, you know, I, I see the level of responsibility that my, my girls are able to take in, in caring for the animals and caring for the farm and, and the, the pride they're able to, to have by being, you know, knowing that, you know, my, my 11 year old, for example, um, can fully manage a 600 pound steer at this point, you know, and, and that's something that most kids her age are never going to experience. And I think it gives her an advantage to, to know that she's capable of that kind of thing. Um, and, and at the same time, just being able to be out in the land and, and, you know, messing around and getting muddy and, and, you know, not worrying about uh, what's going on in the city, I think it's really good for them. And so on balance for all the things that make it hard, uh, the, the positive still outweigh it. What's the biggest surprise in all of that for you so far? Mm -hmm. The biggest surprise in all of it has been, I think for me, how bothered I get by mess. I, I didn't expect it. And there's a lot of mess on a farm. Um, and, and I find myself having to fight daily this idea of like having nice, clean, neat structure when really it is just chaos every day. It's so funny because it, it sounds like professionally you've been trying to bring order to chaos ever since you left <laughs> LA. Um, and you have created chaos to, and maybe in an effort to control it right there in the farm, but also to bring this wonderful, rich experience for you and for your family, a very natural experience. I'm wondering when you look back and you think about when you were a kid there with your parents, and all the challenges that they had and that you experienced with them. What, what that kid would think about what you're doing now, and maybe also what your parents would think about what you're doing now. Yeah. Um, I, I think depending on, on, on sort of what stage of, of life that kid would probably go somewhere between what in the world are you doing? You idiot. And 
wow, that's really cool. Right. I mean, there's, there's definitely chaos here, but as I think about kind of how I grew up in the chaos that, that we lived in then, uh, the, the really big difference, uh, you know, to, to the, to whatever extent is humanly possible is we have a lot more control over the chaos here than I did as a kid in the chaos yeah. in our lives. Um, you know, recognizing that ultimately I'm not in, in truly in control of anything um, that, you know, the day-to-day control that I can exercise over what happens on the farm is a lot different than, than what I was able to, you know, exercise as a, a kid with my mom trying to figure out, you know, where we're going to get our next meal. Um, so, so that's, that's, I think my thought there, as far as my, my parents, you know, my, my dad passed before he was able to, to visit here and, and experience any of this, but my mom was just out uh, middle of last year and spent a, a full week with us here. And and I think, you know, her first reaction was overwhelm and, and you know, we must be insane to have all these animals and everything, but um, she she's already, you know, planning her next visit and wants to come back because I think she, she even enjoyed, you know, chasing the pigs and chasing the cows and, and having the ability to be out in, uh, you know, in, in really what is a very natural habitat um, and experience the grandkids in that way. And and so I, I think she's uh, quite pleased with, you know, with, with what she saw here and just, you know, enjoys being able to spend time with the kids outside. Yeah. Thank you so much for all this, Andrew. Really appreciate it. Yeah, Jay, I, I appreciate the invitation and uh, really enjoy talking with you. Thanks again for making it possible. The Philanthropy Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, webcasts, and CFRE accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at DonorSearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.